So happy new year, everyone. We've got a real treat today. Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author, Elizabeth Chadwick. Now, Elizabeth's first novel was the award-winning The Wild Hunt, and her most recent, A Marriage of Lions, came out last year, which was absolutely fabulous. I'm eagerly waiting her next novel, The King's Jewel, which is out in April and about Princess Neff of Wales, which should be um, a really interesting read. I wrote about Neff in Heroines of the Medieval World, so I'm looking forward to seeing Elizabeth's take on her. However, Elizabeth's here today to talk about the subject of one of her most popular novels, The Greatest Night. We are, of course, talking about William Marshall. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to the podcast. I suppose the obvious question is what attracted you to William Marshall in the first place? That um, that, that will be at the time um, or purely mercenary, really. <laughs> Obviously, as a novelist, you need to find something that's going to um, satisfy your 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 publishers um, and appeal to appeal to your readers. And um, William Marshall's story had everything going for it. A huge adventure story about this man who rose from obscurity to become regent of England you know it's it's crying out to be told so that was the that was the the I suppose the catalyst what am I going to write next how about William Marshall I did hesitate for a short while uh, because it was it was a big subject and I kept waiting for sort of a proper author like (laughs) Sharon K. Penman to write about him but she was busy with other projects Uh, so I feel it was a bit like um, Peter Jackson when he first began um, thinking about Lord of the Rings and he said someone ought ought to film Lord of the Rings and then realised that that someone might just be him and I kept thinking someone ought to write about William Marshall then I thought well let's give it a go and at first my publishers with with their eyes firmly fixed on women were sort of saying well it's about about a man and um, they they were a little bit dubious and so was my even my agent but then she happened to go to um, a choral recital in the temple church and she began wondering about all the um, effigies there of whom William Marshall was one and when I told her his story she suddenly got right behind me and we ended up with a contract to write about him so that what was how it came about It's it's a massive story isn't it really i mean it, it extends over such a long period of time as well it's something like five kings or something isn't it <laughs> yeah yes well, it, it's enormous it was a two book contract i would have liked three books ideally but two books <laughs> was on the table um but i've managed to sneak him in all over the place ever since and, and obviously a third book came along about what he did in the holy land a bit later on over templar silks so uh yeah it, it is a massive massive story well he pops up everywhere doesn't he so it's it's actually quite easy to to put him in something so where did where did you start i mean obviously you recognized that it was a big story and needed to be told but where did you start when you tried to research it all well i, I went to find out what books were available i already had um uh, a volume by professor david crouch which was the biography of william marshall and then i found another one written many years ago by um, a historian called Sidney Painter, uh, which is really 
pretty good. There was another one by Georges Duby. So there were, were a few biographies around, so I got stuck into those. And um, by excellent synchronicity, the Anglo-Norman Text Society were just embarking on publishing the Histoire de Guillaume de Maréchal, which is William Marshall's story written down as a poem of 20,000 lines um, telling his story from cradle to grave. <laughs> so that was a marvellous source. I have to say it's not all true in the histoire. In the Middle Ages, uh, is a blend of actual history and fiction. This is what, what it was. And so some things you have to take with a pinch of salt, but there are other things um, that are bang on true. And what you have to do is weave your way, a bit like you know a historical novel, what's true, what isn't. But there was enough, and, and the, the life and times portrayed for me to be able to begin writing. So there was quite a bit out there. You just, I just had to dig. And Professor Crouch was very helpful as well. We, we had a few emails back and forth. That's always useful, isn't it? If you can actually talk to somebody about it. I was thinking also, obviously it's such a long life. When you're researching it, you presumably start at the beginning. But there's a lot to get through. Did you research the first part, as it were, chronologically, and then write your book? Or did you go a lot further and look at his whole life? before you started on your first book? I looked at his whole life because the biography, I read the biographies cover to cover and also the Histoire de Guillaume le Maréchal. So I did read the whole life before I began writing. Uh, obviously, once I was actually writing, I concentrated on the on the early part of his life. Greatest Night takes him up and just beyond his marriage with small children. So that became more detailed as I was writing. But prior to writing, I did read the painter and the um, Crouch biographies and also the first volume of the Eastward Guillaume Maréchal. The other thing was that I have been writing the middle that part of the Middle Ages um, since I became passionate about the Middle Ages when I was 15. So I've got decades of reading other background books, if you like, um, some, some with a few mentions of William Marshall in, but for, you know, decades of background reading. So that sort of sets you up. You don't have to sort of start knowing nothing um, where you really would have to hit the ground running. Like me sort of suddenly thinking, oh, I'll write a Regency. <laughs> you know, what am I going to read? How, how, oh, oh, you know, I'd be dithering in the spotlight. Whereas, you know, 12th and 13th century I've got you know decades of background reading and research there so that meant that I didn't have to research every single thing because it was already there yeah you had a good uh, knowledge of the period yeah I'm the same with that period as well and um but seeing as I write non-fiction I have a problem because I know the facts well I couldn't actually because I've been researching it for 30 years I couldn't actually tell you where I sourced that fact I just know it yeah, that's exactly it, Sharon. Sometimes people will say, how do you know so-and-so? And I'm thinking, um, some, of the, some of the facts, well, I read it somewhere, and that doesn't really cut it in academia. <laughs> I read it in one of my piles of books, that's for sure. How far do you think William's troubled childhood influenced the man he became? Now, talking about William's childhood, there's this story in... It's in the Eastwar. Is it in the Eastwar? It's certainly in the Jester Stefani of Stephen threatening to execute four-year-old William. And um, he was put in a trebuchet, was he, or threatened to be hanged? Yes, it was. It's, it's, it's one of those stories, like, if I tell you three times, it's true, because he was threatened three times with things. But the only source is the Histoire de Guillaume Maréchal, yeah. which is a history and a fiction. Right. So you can't take it as gospel. Mm. Um, there is probably a bit of no smoke without fire there. I'm sure that William was given as a hostage for John Marshall's word of honour, which John Marshall, of course, broke. Um, John Marshall had got 
this castle called Newbury, which nobody knows where it is. And Stephen was besieging it. And um, it was going to take him longer than he needed. Stephen needed to be elsewhere. And he said to John Marshall, give up the castle. John Marshall said, well, I will, but only if I get permission to do so. Can you give me, you know, just a little bit of time to go and get permission? And Stephen said, all right then, but I don't trust you, so I'll have hostages. And this is where William was given as a hostage, which is quite interesting because at the time, William was the youngest son and there were older sons who could have been taken. So why did Stephen take the youngest? That's another question. Anyway, John didn't bother asking for permission to surrender. He immediately stuffed the castle to the rafters and uh, and put up a stiff resistance because the reason Stephen was there was that he wanted to cut through to uh, Wallingford. And if Wallingford went down, then the entire Angevin cause went down. Mm-hmm. So John Marshall was, was the last man standing, basically. So this child was then threatened with all sorts when, when Stephen found out that, that John Marshall had stuffed the castle to the rafters. And that included hanging, being squashed by um, a millstone and hurled from a trebuchet. And William won them all over by his exceeding charm, saying, was the trebuchet a swing and he'd love a go on it? Stephen took pity on him and took him into his tent and playing ga- played games with him. And John Marshall got a bad rap for being a dreadful father. Now, how much of this story is true? Um, I don't know. I've, I've got my doubts because it only appears in this one source. I think he definitely was a hostage, but his, the source says, the Eastwar says that um, his family set someone go and check on him, a servant called Willikin, who was reporting back to the family on how William was being treated. And William's full of joy with all these men. He's playing with them. Um, he's asking to see their weapons. Now, a child who was not cared about wouldn't have that attitude. So I feel that there's, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye in, in the full um, hostage um, scenario. I think William saw his father standing hard and standing firm against all comers and saw that as, as a strength and loyalty. And later on, after his marriage, when he was in a position to do so, he organised a big feast on his father's anniversary. I think it was on the feast of St Mary Magdalene and paid a lot of money to have a feast in his father's honour for his father's soul. And he remembers his father's soul in in, in other grants and things. Um, some people say that he's remembering his father's soul because he's trying to keep his father out of hell. But if you're trying to keep your dad out of hell, that still means you care for them. So um, I think that the question about his troubled childhood influencing the man he became, I'm sure it did in a lot of ways, but he had a natural aptitude with people, which he was showing at four years old, getting on with these men who were besieging his father. A natural aptitude to deal with the other side if you like, which you see displayed very strongly at the other end of his life when he's trying to pull everything together after Magna Carta. So I think part of it is some of it's nature, some of it is is nurture and observation. David Crouch says that John Fitzgilbert Marshall was one of the great exemplars in William's life. I think it's interesting, actually, because Marshall is a big man, you know, in the stories and in what he achieved for Empress Matilda. And often in history, you see big men followed by weaker men, like with Edward I and Edward II, or with Henry II and King John. But Marshall managed to become such a strong man after his father. And it's interesting to see that it wasn't always a strong man created a weak boy. They could actually learn from the strength of their fathers. Yes, I think that's true. And I think if you probably be hunted around, you could find, well, I can't think of any off the top of my head, other than the fact that, that Henry produced Richard the Lionheart, who, you know, um, had his flaws, yeah. but had tremendous military strength and even John I wouldn't say he was particularly weak he, he wasn't particularly likeable <laughs> no he was my thing with John is paranoia <laughs> he didn't trust anyone <laughs> yes 
<laughs> yeah, um, and and of course, Henry's own father, Henry II's own father, Geoffrey of Anjou, was no weakling, and mm. um, he didn't get a chance to fulfil his full potential because he, he copped it at 38, but he'd, be, he'd put it a pretty good showing up, up to that point. So I, I think, you know, there are examples for both. Yeah. So Marshall has become known as the greatest knight, with the help of your book, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, I actually refer to him in all my books when I mention William Marshall. The next words are the greatest knight. <laughs> but is there anything you don't like about him? That would be that would be very difficult. If I said no, I'd sound like a raging fangirl. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I can't think of anything that I really despise about him. I think there are there are things that you've got to take in the context of the period he lived in. Because if I was in my modern art mindset, the thought of him going around burning villages, as in like Chevauchet, um, where the, you're sent out to, to create mayhem and terror in an area as part of the um, duty to your lord, mm-hmm. then I might not like that aspect of him very much. But he, it was something that he he was part of his culture and that he knew and was expected to do. And there's also the, the cronyism at court and the, the cozying up. But again, that was part of what a successful courtier did. Um, so I don't, I, I can't think of anything where I go, oh, that's, that's awful. Other than in my my personal modern context, looking at what he would have done as a, medi- as a medieval man. He was the one, though, who persuaded them to accept John as king instead of Arthur of Brittany but to be honest seeing what Arthur of Brittany was like I think he was caught between a rock and a hard place anyway I think he he seriously was. He would be looking to his own his own um, power base, of course, as everyone does. Um, so if you've got a choice of having for your boss someone who's in hand in hand with the King of France, who doesn't know you at all, and who's a fourteen year old yeah. boy, you might be able to mould them. But they've already the mouldings already started on the French side, and there are others around him of, of different factions um, to William. And so William's got a choice between that and the devil you do know, who is John, who he's known since he was born. So what are you going to do? He doesn't know that John's going to turn out to be like he was. Yeah. He knew he'd got some other propensity for it. Perhaps he thought he could turn him to the good. Yeah. Don't think anyone expected John's reign to be as bad as it was. I'm not saying John to be as bad as he was, but the reign. But then again, I think the loss of Normandy and loss of the areas in Aquitaine and that were inevitable with the rise of Philip II of France and the fact that, you know, that clash was always going to be there and Philip always wanted France to be France. Yes. You don't want the English on your northern border. (laughs) No, exactly. There was that moment when William was dancing very fast and probably close to the line in terms of loyalty because he had land in Normandy was threatened by the French and um, he got into bed with the King of France by offering him money to stave off the inevitable and uh, swore him what was called liege homage. Or, I've forgotten the, the full details of what that entails but it, it's it's spitting your loyalty basically and when John uh, John took him to task for this William William took umbrage at it mm-hmm. and I think that was probably a moment where William was not behaving exactly as he as he as he should as, as a loyal vassal. So you could sort of put that as a as a, as a black mark a black tick in all his all his positive tick boxes. But he was caught between a rock and a hard place because he had land in Normandy and he had land in England. Yeah. And when you owed land, you owed knight service, and you can't fight for two kings, especially when those two kings are fighting against each other. <laughs> 
exactly. And John did point this out to him. Um, and William offered to fight anyone who thought he wasn't being loyal, which was always William's um, um, fallback. Because he was such um, an accomplished fighter, personally, he would just offer to, offer to, offer to take anyone out who... Um, <laughs> He did even offer to fight with one hand tied behind his back and bluffed his way out of it. Um, such was his reputation. Oh, God. I would have loved to have met him. You mentioned his reputation, and obviously that's almost the source of his, his rise to power. There were other accomplished knights. Why do you think William Marshall has become so symbolic of medieval chivalry? I think people have latched onto him as, as you know, like any celebrity figure. How, how do they rise? You know, people have latched onto him in a certain mm. way through uh, the law of attraction, if you like. Um, also, he has the histoire, which which wasn't well known until recently. But so the interest in him, I suppose, has come from the last century, century and a half, when this manuscript was discovered. And there's, there are a few knights who've had their stories written. I mean, Fulk Fitzwarren, for example. But Williams was sort of the first and the biggest. Yeah. So people are more have become more aware of it, I would say. Um, in earlier centuries, I don't think William Marshall was a chivalric tradition. It's uh, probably in the last hundred years that it, it's become more, and even more so recently. The Histoire de Guillaume le Maréchal is full of the chivalric code, if you like. And I think that's 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 had a knock-on effect. And he's always portrayed in, in films and and, and novels as, as this chivalric knight and people have picked it and run with it and it's sort of like a, a snowflake becomes a snowball you know becomes a, an avalanche uh, that, that's my my take on it I think he's almost been reinvented in a sense in in modern times I think I think people have taken the simplistic view as well of him a lot of people have concentrated on the chivalry reenactors um, etc and uh, forgotten the name for it where people dress up and run about in the woods <laughs> There's lots of words for dressing up and running about in the woods. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, but, you know, for role-playing games and things, and also computers, some computer games, um, which I, I can't name, but I've got an, an idea there is, but there is at least one. Yeah. And people sort of latched on to the, oh, he was a great fighter, especially men. He took all down all these people on the tourney field. He was a great jouster. And people tend to forget the other side of him even the television programs that have been about him um have only sort of covered that early time when he was fighting and jousting nobody's looked at his later life as, as, a, as a great magnate and statesman and that he was the full package but people have definitely latched on to the um the bling and the uh, uh, and the fighty fighty i think everybody needs a hero unfortunate in a way because he did become an accomplished statesman a diplomat and as we've said earlier his his longevity ensured that he played a part in a whole succession of of reigns so was that born out of circumstances or do you think he was always destined to become such a such a great figure he was born with the ability to get on with people that's and also to survive the survival and the getting on with people could be um, part of that early part of childhood um, but I think he also had it as a natural thing and this is what David Crouch says he says what other people had to study came naturally to William Marshall mm. you know you get you get men who well people let's say people men and women who can just raise the atmosphere in a room by walking into it and he had he had that that star charisma he was genuine he saw both sides so he could he could work on several levels at court he rose through being amiable smart charming a good companion in the chamber 
but he also had the military skills required of the time, both the personal physical ones and also the wider ones of, of being um, you know, a general. And he could see the big picture as well as the small picture. So he knew what the fixes were and how to get people to fix them and how to, how to work with them, I think. He was widely travelled. He moved all over with the Tourney circuits, but we also have the Holy Land, obviously. But he moved with the Angevin court. He went to Ireland, Cologne, to the Shrine of the Three Kings. He was all over Europe, gaining experiences which you get with with traveling about resilience he basically had had the full package to be able to do the job i would also add because the histoire was written there wasn't a lot else written in that much detail not twenty thousand lines about a single man and a lot of it verifiable these these days so if people are looking at that you know there's that as a background another guy i wrote about um roger bigo he had a he had quite a strong career but nobody wrote twenty thousand lines about him so there are probably a lot of people um in william marshall's year who haven't had that exposure so i think that's another point to to think about as far as him being popular over the last hundred years that's interesting actually yeah because he was written about we know about him we can see because it's a book directly about marshall his personality shows yes whereas in the chronicles you don't get to see the personality of the characters you just get to see what they did yes exactly and interestingly um, one of the major gossipy chroniclers of the day was Gerald Cambrensis, Gerald of Wales. He doesn't mention William Marshall once. You know, you would think Gerald of Wales would have something in there, but not, not a bean. So that, that I find that very interesting. Perhaps they'd had an argument or something. Yes, well, it was Gerald of Wales warned off. You know, you're not writing about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Expect to visit in the night if you do. <laughs> Maybe Marshall went, my sword's bigger than your pen. <laughs> very possibly, I think, yes. You know, he would have been in co contact with Gerald of Wales quite a bit. Yeah. So why there's a dearthly silence? <laughs> I don't know, but the Eastwar did has given William Marshall a strong advantage in modern times of being noticed, and it's there for scholars to study as well. It is, and it's a fascinating read. But it also helps you to. I mean, my next question is: What was William Marshall's legacy for England? And the Eastwar helps with that, doesn't it? He was prominent, uh, one of England's worst moments, and rose to the challenge, didn't he? He did. Yes. We don't know how much he was involved with with Magna Carta. He was with King John during the Magna Carta crisis and remained loyal to him. But obviously the Magna Carta was being hammered out behind the scenes and William's eldest son, also called William, had been uh, King John's hostage. William had, had had a dicey time and gone to Ireland and John had taken his son hostage. And when the, the uh, baronial crisis came around that caused Magna Carta and William Marshall's son at the time was on the opposing team. Now some people have said that's because they were in cahoots and one on each side was a good thing. And it, it could have been. I don't. I, I honestly don't know that one. Um, it could also have been that um, William Jr. had such a dreadful time as a hostage that he wouldn't come back to the royalist side until King John was dead. Who knows? That wasn't the question. I've gone off piste here, haven't I? William William Marshall's legacy, I think, with Magna Carta, obviously King John sealed it at Runnymede and then mm. reneged on it straight away. But once John was dead, William Marshall set about getting everybody round the table again. Because he'd got that ability to talk to everyone and people actually liked him or, and trusted him, more so, for example, than, say, the Earl of Chester, who was proposed as the regent when John died, everyone accepted that William Marshall could take over steering the ship 
what he did was he got everybody around the table and it was more or less like, look, chaps, we've got to do something here. We're in a mess. And he got everyone talking to each other. He reissued um, a more acceptable version of, of Magna Carta and various other charters. One of his legacies was this ability to speak to each other and to get enemies united, uniting enemies, pulling together, almost Nelson Mandela in a way, if you like. Past is the past. It's still there. But never mind that. We've got to work together now. Yeah, because um, best to remember, the French were in control of half of England at that time. So it was like, look, That's right. we have to get together and fight or we lose England. Exactly. It was, we have no money, we have to find money, which he did from raiding the treasury and um, what, what was left of King John's jewels and things. He managed to find enough to keep the troops in the field, the mercenary troops that was. Um, he got everybody talking to each other. Various barons began coming back on side um, because they trusted William Marshall more than they trusted John and John was dead. So, right, OK, we don't really want a French king either, but we just weren't going to have John. This new Magna Carta look, looks a lot better. Uh, yes, we really need to get rid of the French. And so William Marshall led them up to Lincoln. We have the Battle of Lincoln where the French were thrown out of Lincoln with the aid of uh, one Nicola de la Haye, which is the subject of Sharon's um, forthcoming um, book. Yay! <laughs> Karen's definitely a fangirl there. <laughs> yeah. and, and then the Battle of Sandwich finished it off, where the sea battle, where the French supplies incoming for the French army in England was destroyed by, by the English Navy. And then the French um, had to um, treat for peace. Now, William bought them off. He gave them a bribe to go away and not come back. And he did get uh, a bit of flack for that. Like, whoa, well, we could have, we could have, you know, we could have carried on going and beaten them off. Or why did you give them all that money? William de Warren wasn't very happy with that, the um, Earl of Warren, because he bought up all the hostages, hoping to make a killing when they all bought their freedom. <laughs> and Marshall just let them all go. Oh, God. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> But it, it cleared the ground, if you like. I mean, William Marshall passed away not, not that long after that, but he managed to level that playing field or more or less level it in, in the time he got left uh, and create ground for discourse, dialogue and getting on with daily life. And that was really quite a tough thing to do at the outset, to get everyone back talking to each other and see what needed to be done and do it. And he did. So the fact that the Magna Carta goes on forward is, is partly partly to do with him. I don't know how much he had to do with the actual clauses in it. I suspect that, that um, Roger Bego had more to do with it than William Marshall in that case. Would you say that without William Marshall, that very sort of critical period of a year or so at the end after John died uh, would have turned out very differently? That would be, that's be an interesting would be interesting for, for a, a novelist writing speculative historical fiction to write. <laughs> um, I honestly don't know. I would, I'm not sure that everyone would have pulled together so much because the Earl of Chester wanted the job and didn't get it. And he was known to be a bit of a prickly sort. Hmm. Um, so I think he'd have very quickly had people falling out. I mean, people were, did fall out even after, you know, when William Marshall passed away, there was uh, rumbling factions. But I think the rumbling factions might have done more than rumbled with someone else holding the reins. Honestly, other than that, I don't know. I think it's an interesting subject for someone someone to write. Mm. Well, it's a while since you wrote Marshall's story, but you obviously, he's obviously still forefront in your mind. You 
haven't had to think about any of our questions, Elizabeth. Do you keep up with the research and the Marshall News? I do keep up with, with, with the research, probably not every day, as not as regularly as I did when I was writing the Marshalls. But because I began studying him, what was it, about 2005 now, it's like having that um, decades of background research um, that I, I mentioned earlier. So I was able to start writing without having to do the whole lot. I've got that background awareness going on. I was fascinated when a couple of years ago now, I academic friend Dean Irwin found um, the Marshall's thumbprint on a seal in the in the um, I think it's in the British Library on the on the wax seals and it's the Marshall's thumbprint and it's like oh <laughs> what a find yeah and things will will still keep coming to light I'm quite judicious about what I what I do read about the Marshall now it's if it's new proper academic study mm. then I'll pick it up and read and, and peruse it but popular history not not so much I'm at the stage now where new things coming out of um manuscripts like David Crouch recently published a couple of years ago now the Marshall Letters and Charters in translation in the Camden series that he'd been working on for, for years um, and so it gives you an extra bit of flavour of the man this is the one where we have the uh, information about him giving his father this feast on on St Magdalene's Day to honour his father and other things like that we have another one another of the letters which is um, an apology from William Marshall Jr to the king that he cannot attend him because he is riding to his mother's deathbed so we find out when Isabel died. So things like that are where its actual primary source I will read. So yeah, I keep up with the research, but I, I don't keep up with, with all of it. So if someone goes, oh, here's a Marshall biography on online, I don't necessarily read that because it quite often contains errors. Every time you say that, I remember the pike <laughs> incident. I know one biography said that Marshall won a pike during a joust and he thought that they meant a weapon and it was a fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he won. He won. Um, he, he won a wonderful lance. I think it was two foot six long. When you get your ruler out and look at some lance of thirty inches, and you think, well, that's not going to be much use. I think that though is somebody actually reading it in modern terms. In this day, we wouldn't think of venison or a pike being sent as a gift or given as a prize. Whereas in those days, it was actually quite normal. <laughs> yes, in fact, the pike should have been a swan but they hadn't got a swan to hand, so they had to make do with a pike. So the Eastwar tells us, but what that person had done, or the person's researcher, because it was I think it was the person's researcher, um, was to read the Eastwar in translation and not read the original. The translation at the side says that he was given a pike. I think it says very fresh and 42 foot six long. <laughs> so the person has, has ignored the very fresh bit thought two foot six wow that's big ignored the fact that on the opposite page staring them in the face is the word l-u-z meaning fish <laughs> they're one of those dough moments isn't it dough <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of things that that tend to you know jog me out of the out of the out of the narrative whereas if i'm looking at actual primary source or someone like Professor Crouch, then that, that's a little bit better. Uh, I'm not bringing your books into this at all, Sharon, because I know you write for, for, for a popular audience, but yours are great. Thank you. Because <laughs> I know you have to dig to write yours. <laughs> I do. And I've had the same look as you have, actually. I've managed to, especially with the Nicola de la Haye book, I've had a few experts being very kind in sharing their research with me that I think has made it a better book. Yes. So the original question was, do I still study William Marshall? Yes, but um, selectively. I always think it's amazing how we're talking about someone who lived a thousand years ago and uh, and yet there are still there are some new things that that, as you've mentioned, that uh, emerge 
every so often and yet it's so long ago and and it's the same even beyond that time obviously but it's so exciting when when a little sort of nugget appears and you think oh yes that's that sort of enhanced what we know just a tiny bit more yeah i i think so i i think it's it's uh it is ex- extremely exciting william marshall's son married um uh, baldwin de Bethune's daughter alice and uh, and she died nine months after after um, the marriage, more or less. And I, I think it, I think in my my story, the Scarlet Line, I did take take um, authorial license and had her being 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 murdered by her half brother um, because of certain circumstances that I, I felt that she might well have been done away with, <laughs> um, but that she was pregnant at the time. And I was talking to um, Dan Power, who's another medievalist, and he'd been looking at the idea that she might have died drowned actually on a ship from Flanders. We met at a, a, a conference at Usk and he gave a lecture on, on her um, and how she um, was doing quite a lot in the background, more than you'd think a woman would. Um, she'd gone across to Flanders to secure something um, and then she died and he thought she might have died on a ship on the way back. Um, and I'd had her dying at Pembroke, which I'd, I'd then found out was probably wrong because she was buried in London St Paul's, St Paul's in London. I'd found that out. So we were both coming at it from, from different angles. And then I happened to find a snippet in, in the back of when researching at somebody else, Joanna de Valence, which said that she actually died um, in childbirth or died bearing a child just outside London, one of the manors. So I was able to email Dan Power and say, look at this, look at this, look what I found. And um, so Dan Power was like, Darn, she didn't drown. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. um, but she could still be, be murdered. But it's, that, that still doesn't um, uh, detract from from the, from, the, from the murder notion. But obviously, she didn't die at Pembroke where I had her. She died uh, in this manor near London, which makes sense for taking her to St Paul's. The two of us were both looking at what we got and going, well, that's wrong and that's wrong. And yeah, she did go to Flanders and she did organise this and she was obviously pregnant at the time. We both got something out of it even, and it was exciting and new, even though we both were going, damn it, at the same time. Tantalising, isn't it? All these things that you don't know and you sort of pick away at it and try to work it out. Little things just just, just turn up out, out, out of the blue or by synchronicity, I suppose. Do you think for you uh, there'll be any more uh, writing about Marshall or any other members of his family, or or have you have you done as much as you can on that? Do you think? I would love to. I don't know what I would write. I would love to write more on William Marshall, but um, whether the publishers would love me to write more, I don't know. Probably uh, short stories might be the way to go to fit in between things, or, or perhaps even some non non-fiction. But they're way out in my in, in my atmosphere at the moment. They're just very very loose ideas because I don't think I could get away with putting another one in. The Marshall family, perhaps Marriage of Lions. That was William Marshall's granddaughter, and who who uh, was the female lead in that. And you can usually find a family who've got Marshall connections. So possibly. What about the Marshall War of 1234? Maybe. I don't know because it's it all. It, I mean, there, there are a lot of tears before bedtime. And the sort I write, you need you need, need an upbeat ending. You know, even if it's just they looked at the horizon and you know, do a Scarlet O'Hara, and tomorrow was another day. And, and sometimes for the Marshalls, it, tomorrow wasn't another day. But you could, I could perhaps do, you know, for example, one of the Marshalls, Gilbert, the one was he the priest? He had an illegitimate daughter called Isabel who married a Welsh, a minor Welsh prince. So we, nobody really knows a lot about that. So you could do 
a little contained story, I suppose, about about that aspect. So there are probably stories you could find, but it, it's just looking at the um, they all lived happily ever after. You know, my, my novels always end with a even if it's not happily ever after, it's happily ever after until tomorrow sort of thing. I never thought of an upbeat ending. I must I must consider that, Sharon, in future. I... <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be able to, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Derek's attitude is, if you don't know what to do, kill them all. <laughs> I think that's a little harsh. That's a little harsh, I think. <laughs> no, it's true. He's got a bit more lenient in his, as he's gone on. <laughs> Just one page that so that, that, that there's, there's a bit of optimism there, especially in today's climate. Mine won't die. I wrote one and I was supposed to kill off the hero's brother about two thirds of the way into the novel. And uh, he wouldn't let me. And he had to end. He lived to the end with a wooden leg. <laughs> that's very Monty Python-esque. <laughs> It's funny how that happens. I mean, I, I was I was poised to kill someone off and I just couldn't do it. And, and I decided to keep them alive in the end. So, yes, Sharon, there is somebody I didn't actually kill. It's Eleanor, isn't it? I know you were going to kill Eleanor Elder. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's going to be cut. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this ongoing um, feud, me and Derek. <laughs> for years about Eleanor Elder and every time I read one of his books it's like she's the hero in all these books and it's like I read start reading the book and think don't kill her don't kill her, don't kill her. <laughs> I tried I try so last question Elizabeth um I know there was rumors of a tv series but that's still in very early development stage isn't it um, whether it gets off the ground or not yeah, it's a bit like a show jumping course where you think, hey, and you set off and it's like like an Olympic show jumping course, let's say, you know, the high fences. And you 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 clear them and you get so, get around so many, but there's still so many jumps to clear. Mm. So at the moment, it, it it's it's quiet, but that's not to say that it won't rev up again. So I just I don't put, I've not put, put my eggs in that sort of that basket. I've just left it quietly. Do you have an idea of who? If it was down to you, you would like to be the greatest knight in a movie. Yes, um, Tom Ellis. Oh gosh, yeah. No, I know he camps it up in Lucifer, but he can um, he can do less than campy. Yeah, he's got the looks, he's got the charisma, um, he's got the um, the physique. Yeah. Um, and if he needs to be bad, like when Lucifer get, gets raised red eyes or whatever, yeah, he can be. He, he can give you the fierce look. He's sexy as hell. Um, oh, that, that's, a, that's a good pun, isn't it? <laughs> good eye candy, but but he he can act. Um, yeah, he can. And I'm I'm looking beyond the way he speaks. Like I wouldn't be expecting him to go, ooh, detective. He could do it, um, sit, you know, full on. And he's got that sort of joyfulness and, um, and and smiling attractiveness. I don't mean physically. I mean you know in personality attractiveness, which would would certainly fit the marshal's. Um, Brief. See, I was thinking Henry Cavill. No, <laughs> no, he, he's he. I've seen it. He looks like a. He's very chisel chin. He's too chisel. He's sort of big and beefcake, and you don't want too much beefcake. People get this idea of William Marshall being this yeah. massive beefcakey sort, <laughs> and really, when you look at for the sort of person who would be doing what he did, especially in his younger life, mm. you're looking. You just need to look at an, Olymp an Olympic decathlete. Tom Ellis has got. Although he's got the, the strength and the height, he's got all and the the attributes, they're not overbutched. So there's a certain um, balletic delicacy to him that's not not in Henry Cavill. Cavill. And uh, my, my psychic sources tell me that Tom Ellis is a good match. <laughs>
<laughs> the other thing is the marshal is just he's the right age at the moment or can pass at the moment and they don't don't make it soon then you'll be too old but the marshal is described in the histoire as, as and it says it's a pity he'd got brown hair or dark hair and a, a, an olive complexion there you've got got you've got the right um you know coloring and everything i can see it actually i like tom ellis i think he does really well in lucifer before Tom Ellis, in, in, when people asked me in like 2006, who would be playing William Marshall, I got Ewan Griffiths in the, in the frame. But of course, he's moved on now. He'd have to play um, William's grandfather or something. Mm. But um, at the moment, Tom Ellis is, is in the frame. Yeah, I definitely get that. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. That is absolutely fantastic talking to you. Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed it very much, Sharon and Derek. It's been great. Well, when your when your next book comes out, we'll have we'll have to see whether we can get you back to to talk about that. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, I'm always up up for up for a history chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, so are we. That's why we <laughs> <Yes>. do it. <laughs> yeah. So join us next time when Derek and I will be looking at the state of play in England before the Norman Conquest. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burke. Thank you for listening.